You are listening to Constructing Education in a Digital World with Paul Stephen Jennings and Tom Rodone. Charlotte, good afternoon. And I think um, finally we've managed to get this all tied up. Welcome <laughs> to our um, podcast and thank, uh, thank you very much for joining us. I would like to just open with, with a little bit of uh, sort of personal history from your side. How did you end up as the uh, deputy headmistress of the Doha English-speaking school in, Do- in Qatar? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I started off teaching in England. I was there for seven years, five of a senior leader. And then my husband, who's also a teacher, and I moved to Qatar in 2014. Uh, we just wanted a bit of a change of scene to experience uh, a new culture, preferably one very different to that of the UK, which we certainly got in, in Qatar. We originally only came for two years, but fell in love with the place. And five years on, I'm still here. You mentioned that you are you're very interested in in technology. Mm. Um, how how since the since you've been there, how have you uh, used technology up till this point um, to shape the education that's being delivered for your students? I think one of the most significant changes that the um, that the head and I did, we started at a similar time. And one of the most significant things we did with computing was we brought in a computing specialist teacher. So prior to that, the class teachers were teaching computing curriculum. And whilst we do have some fabulous teachers that are confident in computing, that it you can't get the same calibre as you do from somebody who is trained and um, you know has experience of teaching that curriculum and so that's the first thing that we did um we 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 created a new job role for a computing coordinator and all of the children across the school are taught by him and that was possibly you know the the first step in um, a a big process of really bringing around the technology at desk we also um, implemented things like uh, raspberry pis and using scratch to do coding we purchased a huge set of robotics to enable the children to get on board with the new curriculum when that came through. We also put computing as one of our core subjects, even though it isn't in the national curriculum. We felt that the importance of it, especially in the modern world, we felt that it needed to be up there with maths and English. So we did that also. We've made quite a few changes, actually, when when you come to think of it. Um, we just wanted the children to be able to access as much technology as possible and use it in the most useful way. Charlotte, you've uh, in recent years completed a new build at uh, DES, uh, and year six opens in September. Paul and I have uh, had a number of discussions with you over the last couple of years about the technology you're putting into the building and, and how you are going to maximise the, the experience for the children. What systems are you putting into the new block to mean that in September the children have got the best education? Um, we had to make some changes to the drawings to ensure that there was space and adequate structure for things like whiteboards. I mean, you you yourself will know, Paul will certainly know that when he came to visit, there were so many issues of where the whiteboards could be mounted and where they couldn't be. And the walls were not strong enough to hold such things. And and I think that that comes from, you know, this designing of this building has been going on for six, seven years. And those sort of conversations were not happening as much then. They were not top priority. Whereas now, the first thing you do when you walk into a classroom is you look at what capabilities you have as far as technology is concerned and and things like you know what kind of technology do we want in there so at the moment our current site has smart boards and apple tvs um, set up in each of the classrooms and we wanted to look at having the most innovative and most useful whiteboards that we could every single year we have to relook at our plans and think right what we wanted last year wasn't is no longer the most up-to-date technology we need to start all over again and and we'll be doing that for sure as somebody who is 
always looking and thinking outside of the box. I'm very keen for teachers no longer to be stood in front of a whiteboard teaching to 24 children all facing the board and reading what's written on there. I think that that's not the way that classrooms should be set up anymore. I don't think that's the way that education should be delivered. I think a teacher should be able to move around the room controlling um, from one device in his or her hand and changing the screens and children having devices in front of them that they can see and a teacher being able to take a snapshot of a children's piece of work and airdrop it or whatever around the room. I, I don't want it to be that everybody is focused on one whiteboard. Uh, Charlotte, I think that leads us quite neatly into the next question that I had for you. We as technology consultants and Tom and I have been making a significant effort to, to speak as much to technology providers as we do to teachers to try and find um, the, the middle point where those two requirements meet because technology, um, even IT teachers or technology consultants are always going to try and upsell as much as possible, uh, whereas teachers have a limit to what they can actually utilize. So we've been spending a lot of time working on providing um, a functional solution that actually ticks all the right boxes as well as meeting the right budgets. Are you seeing more IT and education-based technology consultants providing you with solutions that you can actually use, that actually take into account what education needs rather than just what the latest and greatest technology is? Yeah, I think it's um, it's a bit of a minefield because we've entered an era where there are now so many people offering so many services and educationalists know what they what they want, but they don't necessarily know what that looks like. And so, for instance, um, in very simple terms, I wanted to develop the way that our parents sign up for extracurricular activities across the school. So, you know, I, I did a quick Google search, reached out to a couple of companies and then through the conversations and the, the webinars that I had with them, it was a it was a constant hard sell to completely change MIS systems, you know, and, and it's very frustrating as a school leader because you don't you want an educational consultant and, and I did spend some time as an educational consultant you should come into a school um, and, and get a feel for what they currently have and talk about how you can improve what they have not sell them something new not completely change everything you need to work with what is already in place um, you know schools particularly like the one I'm in which is a non-for-profit school don't have an endless amount of money to spend and often want to utilize what they have and I think that that's that's the key, you know, if you want to be a successful uh, business and consultant with schools, you have to go with kids gloves a little bit and be cautious about what you want to change and what you want to implement and just try and best stick with what you have. We, we're working quite hard to try and come up with a, uh, a solution or, or a methodology, I should say, for approaching schools um, and giving them, working with exactly that, working with what they have and looking for ways to enhance that and bring yeah. it into the 21st century rather than replace it. And so you mentioned earlier that you made quite a lot of changes, starting with a, with a head of IT or a dedicated IT um, uh, educator. Mm. What would you like to see in the national curriculum changing? You mentioned that you would like it to be a core subject. You already treat it as a core subject. Yeah. Where do you want to see IT in the future um, as far as the curriculum is concerned? Um, so it's, I'm not an IT expert. I'm a primary teacher. This is a primary school. And so uh, I, I like to think that the children here get a fully rounded education from everything, from computing to art to maths. And I think that the computing curriculum 
used to be used as a way to benefit the other subjects rather than it being a standalone subject. And I think that here at desk because we have the specialist computing teacher we have managed that but there are lots of schools out there that do not have the funding to be able to have a specialist computing teacher and therefore you have classroom teachers who are delivering it and in teacher training you get you know a few days max to teach you the computing curriculum and then that's it you're on your own and if you don't have a passion for that subject and you don't have the knowledge and the skills that you need um, it becomes increasingly difficult. In fact, every year it gets more and more challenging because the children are flying ahead. They know what robotics are. They know how to use Scratch. They can do things that you know most adults cannot do. I'd like to see the computing curriculum be core in the UK. Um, I want it to be given the same importance of math and English. And I suppose a big reason for that is I believe we need to dedicate more hours to ensuring children know how to use the internet correctly and safely. There are so many children around the world who have access to inappropriate and upsetting content. Children can see and read about things that most adults would be disturbed by. And due to the increase in social media, there's so much pressure on children and young adults to look and act in a certain way. They're constantly comparing themselves to images of people that are in most vast majority heavily edited the statistics on emotional well-being of children today are just terrifying, you know, uh, and I feel like as a school and as educators, we should be doing everything we can to instill children with the self-belief and the ability to avoid um, and deal with the upsetting things they can find on the Internet. This does seem to be a, a recurring theme in our conversations is that technology is not a it's not a subject that needs to be taught in a very small box anymore. It's mm. an enabling tool. Um, that we yeah. need to be able to teach our children how to use it as a tool to achieve whatever they need to achieve. You know, I think very, uh, very important that we start seeing technology differently in the education sector. And it is, it is a recurring theme with everybody that we speak to. Um, yeah. With that in mind, we, you've mentioned iPads, you mentioned Chromebooks. Mm. What devices are you, are you moving towards a one-to-one -one ratio of, of devices to, to students in the future? We um, we inherited a scheme when we came to the school, the head and I, in which children, uh, families purchased the iPads for their own child from year three onwards and the child brought them to school. So it's like a bring your own device to school and it had to be an iPad of a certain spec. And we had that from year three up to year six. Um, last year, we moved that to year four onwards because we felt that the year six children uh, needed more time to be taught, like the things I have previously mentioned about e-safety and, and online safety. We wanted to make sure that they had the ability to control that before we, you know, asked them to own their own device. But we brought in the Chromebooks, which personally I feel is a, a much better way to teach IT. Uh, iPads are a wonderful resource, uh, but they have their niche. They're not there for word processing. They're not there for children to be able to create presentations and, and robotic uh, works using things like that. It's just not what they're for. And I think that that's something that as a school you have to be really aware of. Um, I do find it quite antiquated that children traipse through the school once a week for an hour to sit in an ICT room at a desktop computer and then they go back to their classroom. I mean, how many adults are there in the world that own a desktop computer in their house? I'm pretty sure it's not many. You know, we all go home, we get our laptops out, we probably don't sit at a table, we probably sit on our sofa with our Chromebook or whatever. And, and these are, 
the ways that their children are seeing adults using computers, but yet that's not how we're teaching them to use them. I think ICT rooms need to be redesigned and redeveloped. I think technology needs to be around the classroom and children need to be taught how to use the right piece of technology for what they need it for. So if they want to find a fact, then sure, grab an iPad, let's have a quick search. But if they want to make a presentation, they need to get out their Chromebook. But if they want to take a picture of their work and share it with their teacher, great, let's have a look at using Google Drive or Google Classrooms to be able to share that. Do they want to make some stop go animation? Um, so I would like to see classrooms having a variety of different devices for the children to choose the most appropriate device, not just, right, we're going to have a class set of iPads and we're going to have one class set of Chromebooks and we're going to pull them out of a trolley once a week and we're going to use them to type up our English work. No, it's, it's not the way that ICT and computing should be used. Back in March, the coronavirus swept through the Middle East. My children who are at school with you um, yeah. uh, came home and uh, are still at home, much to the joy of all of us parents. Um, <laughs> as it was happening and, and still now, it feels as if COVID-19 has changed education, possibly forever. And uh, how has the, the, the recent homeschooling experience been for you and been for Des? What, what problems have you come across and how have you dealt with those? Um, we were lucky at Des really because um, I just remember I have a friend who um, lives in China, teaches in China, and I, we were just having a chat and he was telling me that his schools had closed and he uh, was having to get on with online learning. And we were just chatting about what he was doing. And, and I just wrung my head and said, listen, I think we should train our staff for this. I think we should, you know, just just preempt it. It's no big deal. We'll spend a staff meeting training them how to use Seesaw to ensure that if the schools close, we're ready. And he said, sure, great. So literally the next day I'd got two of our teaching staff um, in the IT room teaching teachers how to use Seesaw for should the inevitable happen and then within a matter of days it happened uh, we weren't expecting it to happen but we were prepared and we were ready and the day after the children were sent home we were up and running with remote learning and we we chose to use Seesaw purely because it was something that was embedded in most of the classrooms so it enabled parent, uh, teachers to feel confident and the children were aware of it as well certainly further up the school if somebody had come to me and said your schools are going to be closing in two months time I'd have probably looked at a different structure I'd have probably gone with something like Google Classrooms um, I'm trying really hard at the moment to embed Google Apps across the school was one of the things that I changed quite a lot when I came here is that I moved all of the timetabling, uh, all of the duty rotors, um, their school calendars, the, the way that staff communicate with each other. I moved it all onto collaborative documents for staff to share because prior to that, it involved printing off on a weekly basis, which drove me insane. One of the things that you picked up on there that, that Paul and I talk about a lot offline but haven't actually managed to drill into with many of the, the subjects so far is what effect this has had on the, the running of the school, on the school administration. Uh, it's a massive part of the business of education. How has COVID uh, affected the way you are interacting with your parents, that you are administering the school and uh, making sure that the business of running your school works? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's been a very difficult few months because we rely heavily on a big group of people to run a school of this size. Yeah, we, we are only a primary school, but we're full form entry from FS1 all the way up to year six. So we have over 700 children 
and we are fortunate enough that most of our parents pay online so have been able to continue to do that. We use Class Dojo as a parent communication tool that's been embedded for over a year now and so that was a wonderful way for our teachers and for myself to be able to feed back to parents what the plan was and what we were doing. We very quickly generated uh, an information pack about what remote learning would look like, what the timetables would look like, what the expectations would be, and we sent that out. Possibly the challenging, the most challenging aspect of the administration team has been the admissions. We're um, a selective school and we assess children for places. We're quite heavily oversubscribed, particularly lower down in the year group, so we have to have a very stringent test in place. So we had to create an online admissions test which we've been running now for uh, just over a week. Um, and the, the one aspect that we obviously cannot assess children on is the social interaction with other pupils. And so we're unable to do that. We're he relying heavily on previous school reports to indicate to us how well the child will fit into our school. Charlotte, this is the point we, in our podcast where we get onto the future of education. And we've been very fortunate with you in that prior to us recording this, you shared with us a draft manifesto that you've been working on along with some collaborators um, about how you see the future of education. So if you can give us a little bit of an overview of, of the manifesto um, and then we'll jump into a couple of questions around it. Yeah, I mean, I think I have to start with that the the manifesto that I'm sort of involved in has nothing to do with my role as a as a deputy head at death. Um, it's a side project that um, I've been lucky enough to be invited to be on a, on a panel of. Um, it's something developed by the head of education at Shell um, and um, somebody called Paul Andrews, who was previous, uh, previously the head of education at Qatar Petroleum. And they wanted to get together and talk about how this very difficult, challenging, but yet amazing remote learning that has happened during COVID-19 and how that can make changes to the way that the education system currently runs. I mean, it has created opportunities for radical changes in the ways that we organize our lives. You know, to the, the manifesto focuses on improving education worldwide and building resilience into schools and education systems. I mean, the head of education, Hank, obviously, He's very heavily involved in reducing the carbon footprint. That's one of his remits and to reinforce the learning triangle between students, parents and schools. And so they've developed 12 actions that they would like to investigate further as a possible way, a possible manifesto to improve the education of children's lives. Yeah, so my my very broad overview understanding is that what we are looking at is almost a university style, and this is obviously more focused on secondary school, I would assume, yeah, um, a university style campus environment where the resources and teachers are available to students to use almost at their will. So if there will be online resources where students will be able to work from home. If that suits them, they wouldn't really ever need to come to school unless they have a collaborative project that they needed to work on. If I understand that correctly, there are some challenges that are going to be, be created around that. So mm. do you feel that we, we are that 14, 15, 16 year old children will be able to take on that level of responsibility uh, for their own education? I think it's a really important point. Um, but I do feel from somebody who is not a secondary school teacher, you know, I'm primary trained. 
but I do remember my time as a pupil at a secondary school and uh, I, I didn't enjoy it. I remember thinking, you know, we all come every day, we come to a classroom, we listen to somebody who is a specialist in a subject, they talk at us for an hour, then we go to the next one and they go to the next one. And I, I never felt like I had been prepared for life. I never felt that I had been given a set of skills that would help me to perform well as an adult. And I feel that that is a massive gap in education, particularly in the older year groups. But I also think that in the primary school, we can develop that further. You know, we can teach children life skills, teach them how to open a bank account, how to manage their money correctly, uh, what a healthy lifestyle looks like. Things like that are so important. But, you know, in the UK alone, 18 percent of children leave school at 18 without any substantive qualifications, 18 percent. So it tells me that it's not working. And this manifesto looks at ways in which to reduce the time that students spend in school buildings and deliver lessons and content through remote personalized learning programs using online tutoring, monitoring, support. It wouldn't be letting go and allowing the children to go at their own pace. It would be, right, these are the tasks that we have. Here's project-based learning that you can do. Here are your lessons for you to focus on this week. And, and the children can, and the young adults can take that and run with it how they wish, but also still have time within schools, but just not every day, eight till three, one lesson, the next lesson, the next lesson. Um, it, it, I think it would certainly benefit those hard to reach pupils who are disengaged with learning. And that's, I mean, this is obviously the end goal here is to reach mm. every children in a way that, that, that they will respond best to. Yeah. Um, and, and, and obviously that's a, a, is a wonderful aim. Less children in the classroom also means a lower carbon footprint, which is which is good for the environment. It's something yeah. that's come up. I asked you earlier when we were chatting offline, how yeah. we does this not mean we need to actually start with changing how we measure performance of, of the, the students and make sure that they're taking in what they need to? It's a great question and one that I find myself having a discussion with other teachers and, and educators uh, all of the time in that, why do we do that? Why do we constantly have to mark and assess every single piece of work that a child produces. You know, it wasn't that long ago that all schools would say, every time a child does a piece of work, you give it two stars on a wish, two things that are great, and then one next step. And then the child needs to respond to that, and they need to make an improvement. And then the teacher marks it again, and the child, resp and the child responds, and the teacher gives them a challenge. It's never ending. You know, a, a child never feels like they have completed it. Gone are the days when you could just tick a piece of work and a child would be satisfied with that and the teacher would be satisfied and it would be done. Um, it, it, I understand that there are needs for children to have feedback. They need to know when they've done well and they need to know when there's been an error and that they can correct it. But at the moment, teachers spend hours of their lives sitting, marking books um, for children to supposedly read and feedback and improve. And I feel it's a a big time wasting exercise when children could be getting their teeth into something else, something new, something exciting, and they could just be satisfied that they've achieved something so well and move on from it. You don't always need to improve everything that you do. As adults, we don't do that. You know, every time I complete a task, my boss doesn't come to me and say, oh, you could have done this better. This is how you could have done this. Thankfully, he doesn't do that. Many children flourish in, in many different ways. Some like a test, some like to receive ticks and crosses and know how well they did. Some children like to do coursework. Some like to work in a group on a project. Some like to work independently. And I think that's one of the things of the manifesto is allowing uh, children to choose the way in which they learn best and run with that rather than being dictated to, you must do it like this. And if you don't do it like this, then you've failed. What we are seeing in the modern workplace is 
potentially filtering down into education. We had a very interesting chat with a classroom and furniture designer last week where we talked about designing a Google-style classroom where we have lots of different workspaces and they are variable so that different people like to work differently. Some people want to stand, some people want to lie on a beanbag, some people want to sit at a desk. I mean, is that a potential that we're going to see this flexible workspace, flexible uh, performance metrics, KPIs now being used to measure student performance? One of the things that interests me greatly is the Singaporean method of the 21st century competencies, and they base their curriculum on things um, such as, are you a self-directed learner? Are you a confident person? Are you a concerned citizen? Are you an active contributor? Um, what, you know, how, you, how do you score yourself with your self-management? Are you reflective? Do you have civic literacy? Um, are you critical and an inventive thinking? You know, these are the key competencies that make somebody who can be successful and someone who can contribute to society. Do we really prepare pupils to be good contributors to society? And I don't think that we do. Did I, when I left school, did I know what my role would be in society? Or was I thinking, what job am I going to do to earn money? You know, it really is a different way of thinking. Um, And I think that it's exciting that COVID-19 has brought around this think tank um, about how we can utilize this terrible situation to reevaluate how we evaluate pupils. And I think that it's something that we should grasp onto and use this opportunity to think a little deeper and think outside the box and to how we can change the way that we grade students. Is this something you can see working in the privileged international school communities we live in? Or is it designed to be equally effective in less privileged inner city schools from around the world? It's not so we're sort of early days in the in the discussions of the manifesto. And even though we have sort of 12 actions of what we want to achieve, one of the big areas that we want to look at is trying to reduce the amount of children that leave schools without an education. So more than a third of the world's primary age children cannot read, write or count more than a third at the age of 12, which is totally ludicrous. Recently, UNESCO wrote that 264 million children around the world don't have access to an education, which is just a huge number. If you're going to be able to use things like remote learning, you can automatically reach children that wouldn't have an edu- access to education. Obviously, there are the boundaries of who has internet access. If you don't have the in- infrastructure in place, how are you going to reach, um, reach this remote learning? But there are children out there that may have access to the internet, but don't go to school for other reasons. And so we can reach out to those with a manifesto like this. They're not going to be able to go to school all day, every day, because actually some of them have to go out to work. And so here's some remote learning. We can teach you at your time and at your place and when you're ready and we'll be here. We'll have online tutoring for you. We'll have mentors for you. There'll be a bespoke program in place to assist you so that you can achieve your potential Um, rather than just washing our hands and saying, look, you can't get to school. So you're not having an education because at the moment, that's how it works. If you physically cannot get your body into an educational institution, you're not going to learn those skills that you need. And that's what we're trying to say. Do you really need to be in a building to learn? Do you need to go to a school and be taught by one teacher to be able to have an education? And I don't think that you do. Responsibility being put onto the children uh, makes so much sense for the larger percentage Mm. how do you manage the children that just don't 
A, want to learn. They don't want to go to school. They don't want anything. And now you're giving them the freedom to, to be able to not bunk off. But mm. how, do you, how do you deal with the children that don't want to be in the school? I mean, if you think back to your time at school and you think about those children that came rarely, disrupted the learning, didn't actually learn anything and, and left, there is a very high probability that they are within, um, you know, the percentages that I was talking about earlier who who do not leave school with any substantive qualifications. So they're already leaving school without them. And maybe it's that they don't like the uniformity of a school. Maybe it's that they don't want to sit and be spoken at, you know, at eight o'clock in the morning, um, maybe actually giving them the opportunity to learn at their own pace and with projects that they can be interested in. I mean, yes, maybe they're not interested in, in the science behind the parts of a flower, but maybe actually they would be really interested in learning about how they could take part in um, a project that would reduce global warming, or maybe they might be interested in looking into the study of how, why COVID-19 spread into a pandemic so quickly and why we were not prepared. It's about making the learning individualized for the child and they will learn the same skills, uh, but just through a different medium and through a different project that they're interested in. And it's about tapping into that. I think we can all accept the fact that, that our society today, because of the pressure put on parents and the financial pressure put on a lot of people, the majority of households, particularly middle-class households, both parents are working. The manifesto obviously requires a lot of parental involvement. Does it take into account the availability of the parents? I mean, the social responsibility of schools to discipline and educate children has become way beyond what it was originally designed to be. But unfortunately, schools are playing a very important part in, in disciplining and educating children. So not only the education, but the discipline part as well. How is how does that function within the manifesto? Um, it's an interesting comment that you make that parents would need to be there. Um, I would make a guess that most children between the ages of 13 and 16 are not monitored on what they are doing on their computer and are not monitored on, on the production of their homework and how much work they're doing. I think that we make the assumption that parents are needed to do things like this. I know for a fact that the children that are in my school at the moment in years five and six for their remote learning, I would say 80% plus of them are doing that independently. I know that through feedback on the parent survey that we recently did. I know that through talking with parents because actually children that are in key stage two are more competent, more able to use this uh, piece of software and to use the computing and the remote learning than their parents are. Um, and so the parents have sort of said, left them to it and they're getting on with it. We were so surprised that almost 100% of our children are participating in remote learning. Um, and that's not, you know, replicated across the world. I'm very aware of that. But our children are on board and they're doing it because they want to learn. And people forget that. There is an intrinsic motivation in all of us to learn. Otherwise, you know, none of us would progress. None of us would climb the career ladder. None of us would be in a job. You know, we all want to learn new things and we all want to achieve and we all want to do well. But it's just it's not a one size fits all. We don't all learn in the same way. And really, this manifesto is about reaching those children that find traditional schooling um, inaccessible. We're very happy to have had the deputy head of Catter's leading primary school today. Um, your experiences bringing robotics and coding into primary education have been fascinating to listen to. Whilst the reality of protecting our young children from the darker side of the web is clearly a vital part of modern education. 
I know from personal experience how hard you and your team have worked throughout the COVID experience. It has been impressive to watch. Education is changing and your experiences with your education think tank discussing the future is exactly what the world needs in this exciting time. And we look forward to your manifesto developing in the months to come. Thank you for listening to Constructing Education in a Digital World. We look forward to you joining us for the next episode soon.